Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us out again today to worship your son. Lord, we ask that now as we look at your word that you will help us. For we know without the spirit working in our hearts, we can't even understand you. We can't understand your word and we won't even apply the scriptures properly to our own hearts without the spirit's work. Father, we are completely, utterly dependent upon you. Please help us, God. We acknowledge your great worth now. We ask that you be glorified through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in the middle of the discipleship ministry of our Lord. He is teaching His disciples and making followers of Himself. In this teaching format, we see some wonderful truths revealed about our Lord and Master. Remember, the setting includes Jesus speaking to His disciples in the midst of a big crowd, a crowd that was stepping on each other to get to Him. There is some debate whether Jesus is speaking to disciples who were true followers or just professing disciples. Obviously, this group of disciples includes Judas, so there were some that weren't real believers, at least one. But the focus of Jesus' teaching here has to be based mostly on the true followers, based on a couple of factors in context. First, there is a concern by, on the effort of Luke to point out that Jesus focuses his attention on the disciples. Even though there's a large car, crowd, Jesus puts his attention on the, or on the disciples, and Luke points that out. Second, Jesus himself appears to direct his words to the disciples specifically over and over and over. He says, I say to you... I say to you, I say to you. You'll see that phrase over and over in this section. The sermon goes, by the way, down through Luke chapter 13, in, in parts of Luke chapter 13, verse 9 in that area. And then third, notice what he calls the disciples in verse 4. Look at verse 4 in, a, in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. It says, he calls them his friends. So it appears to be that he is directed this term of endearment to them, a, a kind term, my friends. So he's talking to the disciples. Now, as we go through this sermon, the audience is going to start to interrupt him. And it appears Jesus addresses the audience and then goes back to addressing the disciples. So to look briefly at a review, I want to kind of catch us up to speed and look at this sermon as we go along. We talked a little bit last week about, a lot about, uh, avoiding hypocrisy and a fear of man. Jesus is warning his disciples that this hypocrisy can spring up in them. All of us, including the most Christ-like followers, are vulnerable to this hypocrisy. And this is found throughout the New Testament. The evidence of this vulnerability is seen in the other epistles. Now, for example, look at... 1 Peter 1, chapter 22, 
down through chapter 2, verse 1, that's one section, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So he's talking to believers, right? For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You've been born again by the word of God. You are true believers, right? Peter's talking. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This word that converted you, it endures forever. This gospel truth. And this is the word which was preached to you. Notice verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What's the idea here? This is for believers. Put away hypocrisies in your life. And this is a plural. Hypocrisies. It's all forms of hypocrisy. All forms of fakeness. We got to put it off. And then he says, long for the pure milk of the word. So Peter recognizes and says, be careful of hypocrisy, folks. You're vulnerable. Then look at Romans 12, 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul tells him, let love be without fakeness. So what does that say about us? That we can be fake in our love. That never happens, right? <laughs> yeah, we can be fake in our love. We can clean up the outside. We can be a hypocrite in our love. If we're not careful. But then we come to this passage. And let me set the context a little bit here. This passage caught my attention. I don't even want you to read it yet. This week as I was studying and I was thinking about the sermon and how it all fit together. It's found in Galatians. So if you want to turn your Bible, you can. Who, again, who was Jesus directing this sermon to? It's to the disciples, right? Back in Luke 12. And the disciples include who? Well, the 12, right? And specifically, Peter. His other name is what? Who can tell me? Cephas, that's right. Well, it includes the twelve, at least, and Peter's included. And later in the sermon, Peter even speaks up. In Luke chapter 12, verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable, later on in the sermon, to us or to everyone else? So Peter's listening. He's getting it. He's hearing the sermon, right? All right. So Jesus was warning the disciples against hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of self-righteousness. And the Pharisees were famous for this self-righteousness, right? They viewed that if I do these things, I look good in front of everybody else, and it was all about the external, clean yourself up on the outside. And they were great outside-of-the-cup cleaners, not inside-of-the-cup cleaners. So Jesus said to his disciples, be careful of being a hypocrite or being hypocritical. He then further explains what disciples should avoid. He says, do not fear man. Don't worry about what man thinks. Don't worry about that stuff. Focus on me. Remember, Peter and his disciples were being instructed. And not long after the sermon, by the way, in Luke chapter 12, it's not more than a year. They preach Pentecost. Peter preaches Pentecost. 
and he's bold and he proclaims it. And we'll talk about that in a little in a little while. So in some ways they were listening to the message, right? They were getting it. They were hearing the truth. They were grabbing it. But then Jesus gave another command in the sermon in Luke 12. He said this. He said, do not fear man, but fear God. And we saw this in verse 5 of Luke chapter 12. He moved on to a proper view of God. If your view and your, your thinking is on God, that he's just and gracious, and you're thinking about who God is, and you're meditating on who God is and what he's done, then you will act appropriately. If you're focused on Christ, a full understanding of God's character, his justice, and his grace, you will then work or do things without hypocrisy. When we're truly focused, folks, and meditating on who God is and what God has done, that's why I'm constantly telling you, go back to the cross, go back to the cross, go back to Christ, think about Christ, meditate on Christ, think about God. When you're thinking there, then your lives will be motivated by a genuine understanding of God and you will kill sin and you will honor God. So we see here a picture of Jesus equipping his fathers in Luke 12, right? But I was shocked when I came to this passage in Galatians 2. Look at it. Just to set the context a little bit. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is addressing the Galatians and he says, Listen, be careful. Don't fall back into this religious works mentality. Don't go back to thinking like a Pharisee. Don't go back to works righteousness that is based on what you do. He says, in in effect, he says, that's a false gospel. Don't go there. And in the midst of this, he's trying to explain things, and he gives an illustration. And his illustration was a discussion he had with Peter and some of the other apostles. The same Peter that was at the sermon in Luke chapter 12, okay? The same Peter that heard all of that and preached at Pentecost, okay? And look what Luke 2 says. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me. This is Paul talking. James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So I was accepted by these guys. So that we might go to the Gentiles and they too to the circumcised, to the Jews, right? The only, they only asked us to remember the poor and the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why was he condemned? Why did he stand in this condemned position? Peter, why? For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came... He began withdrawing and holding, hold himself aloof, fearing the party of who? The circumcision. What's he doing? He's fearing man. Peter, the apostle Peter that preaches at Pentecost, is preaching the same one. This is after it. He was like, oh, the Jews are here. Oh, I'll go see it with my buddies. I, I'm clean. I don't eat like those Gentiles over there. Look at me. Fear those guys. I want their approval. 
I don't need the Gentiles anymore. Who is this? Paul rebukes him. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas, the son of encourager, was carried away by their hypocrisy. Who's fallen into the trap? The apostle Peter himself. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time teaching his disciples? Because they're vulnerable. And you are too. You need it. (laughs) You need to hear this over and over and over and over again. You are vulnerable to being fake. You're vulnerable to fearing man. If Peter is vulnerable, you're vulnerable. Delivering maybe the greatest sermon outside of Jesus' sermons at Pentecost, right? The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The result that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it? that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. You're being a fake. And you're calling on them to be religious without trusting in the gospel. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in who? Christ Jesus. Your righteousness is found in where? One place. Only one place. Christ. It's your only hope. No other place. You're not going to work your way to heaven, I promise. You're not going to look good enough. And anytime you do, you're a liar and a fake. And anytime you think, oh, well, I'm going to clean up and look good today so that somebody will like me and they won't think bad of me, you're doing the same thing. And Paul rebukes him. He says, through faith in Christ Jesus, even we believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith. We are declared right by faith alone in Christ alone. Your hope is found in who? Christ. No one else. That's it. And Jesus in his sermon in Luke 12 says, be careful of hypocrisy. Remember who I am. Know that it's me, it's not you. You have no hope outside of me. I'm your hope. Trust in Jesus. Anytime our vision gets off that, we will be a hypocrite. Anytime our attention gets off of Christ, you too will be a hypocrite. We boast not in our works, do we? Do we boast in anything about ourselves? No, we boast in Christ Jesus alone. We are all vulnerable, even the guys that were listening to the sermon in Luke 12. You are too. And the very moment that you think, oh, that's not me, is the moment what? You're there. You've fallen into it. (laughs) Understand your vulnerability. Don't be two-faced. Trust in Jesus. 
When our attention is on Jesus and Him crucified, we all will do works. But our works will be motivated for, out of a love for God and a proper fear of Him. So last week we learned Peter heard and probably kept his focus most of the time in a general direction of his life. But even Peter falls, and we can too. So let's look further at Jesus' warning in this great teaching sermon. Jesus gives three more points of exhortation to his followers. We can all be exhorted also through these three points. The three exhortations can be summarized as follows. Confess Christ. Avoid blasphemy. And rely upon the Spirit. Let's start with confess Christ. Confess Christ. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus again, talking to his disciples, says, And I say to you, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. These first two exhortations, confess Christ and avoid blasphemy, have both a positive and a negative side to them. Do this, but don't do that. Confess Christ, but don't deny Christ. Everyone who confesses Christ before men will be confessed by Christ, the Son of Man, before the angels of God. This literally is everyone who acknowledges. Confess means to acknowledge Jesus with agreement in front of men. Agreeing to who he is and what he's done. The idea here is anyone who affirms from the heart the person and work of Jesus Christ, they have confessed him. And they are confessing him. The word confess does not mean just saying facts about Jesus. It carries the idea of a heartfelt affirmation of Jesus to others. It's very important. We've talked about catechizing our children. Some of you have heard of catechizing your children, where you teach them the facts about who God is, and you ask them a question, and they tell you who God is, and they tell you about you know, who Jesus is. This stuff is good, but I want you to remember something. You can have all that stuff in here, and you can dictate confessions out of the mouth, and it not be here, and you not believe it. Confessing does not just mean saying the question after the other person. That means nothing. Do you understand? That's not confession. Confession is a heartfelt acknowledgement and agreement with the truth of who Jesus is. It is He is God. He is my Lord. He is Savior. He alone is my only hope. And it's a life that matches the confession. A life that doesn't match the confession means that the mouth is just spewing stuff from a dead heart. Lives reflect a heart change. If you're a genuine believer, you will confess it and live for him. The affirmation of confession or acknowledgement of Jesus that Jesus is talking about here is not to avoid punishment, per se, or people's approval. It's because we know him and we've profess the truth it's very much like romans 10 9 that if you confess with your mouth you agree and speak agreement 
that Jesus is Lord or Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's the idea? That your heart matches your voice. You understand? Confession is not just words. It's a heart change that acknowledges truth. If we view heaven correctly, if we view God correctly, our ultimate joy is found in knowing that God will then say, I'm your child. And to be confessed before the angels is to be said, this is mine. He's my child. He's mine. And he tells the holy angels, this one's mine. If we acknowledge Christ, our hearts have been converted and we trust Christ and we acknowledge him, then one day we will be acknowledged by God that this is ours before the holy angels. Now, when we read over that little phrase there, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God, we might think, oh, well, no big deal. You know, God's going to say, that's my child to the holy angels. Is that a big deal? Oh, yeah, that's a big deal. I want you to think about this for a second. What are the holy angels? They're holy angels. They've never sinned. Never, not once. They're created beings that are perfect. Holy, perfect beings that have never sinned. What do the holy angels think of us right now? They look at us and they go, whoa, dirty people. (laughs) Wow, sinful, wicked. Man, I would love to know what the angels, if they were, you know, we don't know where they are. Just watching us, what do they think? I wonder how many times I go, oh my, man, did you see that? Wickedness, wretchedness. But who's going to acknowledge that we are his children? Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the angels, is going to say, this is mine. This one's mine. Now, the obvious question is, why? Why will he say, this one's mine? What in the world would he confess? Is it all based on what I do with my mouth? No. It has to do with what Jesus did. See, if we confess him, we acknowledge he's our only righteousness. He's our only hope. He's the only way. We say we're nothing. He's it. And so he goes, yep, they're mine. I paid for their sin. They're righteous because I've declared it through my death. These are mine because of what he did. Our hearts will match our voice and Christ will acknowledge us before the holy angels. Wow, what a glorious truth, isn't it? Jesus states, though, those that deny me will be denied before the angels of God. Now, the word deny means literally refuse or disown or renounce or reject towards others. The idea is is to deny who Jesus is and how he's related to you. This would be a very stern warning to his disciples to check their hearts and remain faithful to Jesus. Don't deny him. Jesus states, if a person denies me before men, then they will be denied before the angels of God? Now, the person who denies Jesus before men will be denied before the angels of God. Thus, the one who denies Jesus will be rejected by Jesus in heaven. 
Again, this is a great fearful warning, isn't it? This is a scary thing. Who wants to be rejected by God before the holy angels? Nobody. He's exhorting disciples, though. And you want to see something really staggering. Guess when that word deny is mentioned again. The next time it's mentioned. Luke 22. The very next time the word is mentioned is where? Having arrested him, talking about Jesus being arrested, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter, oh, poor Peter, he's getting picked on today. But Peter was following at a distance, and after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a certain slave girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it. Oh, ouch. Next time the word's mentioned, he's talking about Peter himself. Peter himself. Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, another one saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said to him, Man, I'm not. <laughs> what is that? Denial again. And after an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned. This is literally a passive verb. Jesus is being beaten. He is turned to face. He is turned by his beaters to face Peter and the eyes. Oh, pain. The Lord was turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had said, how he had been told before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Whew. I wonder if he remembered the sermon in Luke 12 too. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Look at my heart. Hypocrisy has arrived. And even me. Now we all know what happens to him. He repents. He turns. He commits to Christ. Anew. He was already declared right, but he was a man that needed to be warned over and over and over again, just like you do, that you need Christ. Your hope is only in Christ. Your righteousness is found in only Him. Turn to Him. Trust Him. You need Him all the time, not a little bit, every second of the day. Everybody in here that understands this says what? Amen. That's me. We don't look at Peter and say, I'm better. We look at Peter and say, that's me. Right? We need Him. Oh, folks, listen to me. Jesus is just warning the disciples to keep your attention on me. Keep your focus on me. Trust me. I'm your hope. So did Jesus deny Peter before the angels? No. But only because Jesus died and the sin of his denial was paid for in less than 24 hours from that point. The denial itself was paid for. It cost Jesus his life. 
when he looked and saw and wept, Jesus in effect says, I'm going to take care of that one too. And we see this as Jesus develops his sermon in Luke chapter 12. We can learn here though, Jesus takes serious how we respond to him publicly. We need the grace of God, folks, to stand firm with, for Christ. And that's what Jesus is stressing in Luke 12. Notice he comes to his second one. Avoid blasphemy. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Okay, how many of you in your life have worried that you have done the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. And so you've worried whether or not you're going, you can't be forgiven, right? Some of us maybe? Yeah, a lot of us. So let's talk about this a little bit and see if we can get into this. First of all, notice it's like the other one. There's a positive and then a negative side to the instruction. He speaks a word, anybody who speaks a word against Christ, and you will be forgiven. But if you totally turn your back on Christ and reject Him and blaspheme Him, after seeing the Spirit's work, you won't be forgiven. So we need to talk about this a little bit. Speak a word against Christ first. The idea here is rejecting Jesus. Even if we reject Him with our mouth, we can be forgiven. If we do what? What's assumed? Repentance. Repentance has to be assumed there. If we repent, the idea is, is that we can be forgiven even if we speak a word against Jesus. By the way, anytime you sin, you might not speak a word, but you do what? You go against Christ, don't you? Anytime you sin. So he's talking about a sin, and if you repent, you're right. Jesus is talking about a person who sins but then and turns his back to the Lord, but then repents and turns back. Now, I want to clarify something. Forgiveness for sin still comes with a price. And you must understand that. There is a common notion out there. You talk to many, many people. You ask them, how do you know you're going to heaven? And they say, because God forgave me. And you say, well, why did they forgive you? Because I asked him to forgive me. He asked him to forgive me, so he forgives me. And then the, the next question is, so you asked him to forgive you, and he forgives you. Would be like a judge that's just, and the guy that's done a horrible, heinous crime, looking at the judge and saying, hey, judge, will you forgive me? And the judge says, sure, I'll let you go. Go ahead. Would that be a good judge? That'd be a horrific judge. He'd be an unjust judge, wouldn't he? Forgiveness costs something. It costs something. What did it cost? All this is assumed. It's assumed. It will be forgiven him, but there's an assumption. Something had to be paid for. What's Jesus saying? I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Because forgiveness is not free. You speak a word against me, but you're going to be forgiven when you repent because you're going to trust in me and your sin will be placed on me and I will take the punishment for it. Forgiveness costs something. Every time you sin, it costs Jesus something. Every time, every evil thought, it costs Jesus something. 
every thought. Forgiveness is not free. Jesus is assuming, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to pay the price. I'm going to fulfill the plan. I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice. What a great truth, isn't it? We can have our sins forgiven by turning to him and trusting in his death. How often do we turn to the gospel? I would venture to say probably numerous times we should a day. Numerous times we're turning back to our Savior. Otherwise, we try to clean up the outside of the cup and we fall right back into hypocrisy. Listen, folks, look at this. I love this, these verses. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. Big word. It means the appeasement of God's wrath. He's the one that took the wrath of God. Jesus is your appeasement of God's wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the, those of the whole world. The idea is, is for all those people groups everywhere around the world without distinction. Forgiveness is not free. It costs Jesus his life. But because God is kind and merciful and gracious, he provided the Son of Man to atone for sin. But now, Jesus, back to verse 12, warns there is a sin that will not be forgiven. Look. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. The word blaspheme means to slander, revile, insult, or defame someone's reputation. So Jesus says, if anyone slanders, reviles, insults, or defames the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, right? Then it will not be forgiven them. We all know that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, right? We can, why can one member of the Trinity be rejected by a person, and be forgiven, Jesus. But another member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, be rejected by us and not be forgiven. That didn't make sense. Isn't God the same? Isn't the atonement the same? He must have a people group in mind. He must have people in mind. He must have a context in mind. Now, this is highly debated this passage and you might not agree with me when you leave and that's okay you keep studying it this is where i'm landing <laughs> okay we want to know to the best of our abilities what blasphemy of the holy spirit means so what is it there's three main possibilities one blasphemy of the holy spirit is the rejection of the spirit's call to repentance in our heart I don't believe that that's it. Because that seems to go against irresistible grace. The idea that God, when he calls, he will work. He'll work out his plan. God doesn't call people that won't, he won't effectually work in. God calls and he works. So it's not that. I don't think it's that. Second, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is apostasy. Apostasy. 
Apostasy, I'll spell that A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y. Apostasy is a person who is exposed over an extended period of time to the work of the Spirit in others and through the testimony of Jesus. They've seen it, they've seen it, they've heard it, they've heard it, they've constantly, continuously seen this. Who then, after seeing it and 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 seeing it, say, no, I'm not going that way. And in fact, turn and begin to rail against it and preach against the truth. They may be sat in a church for a long, 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 long time and after hearing all the great truth, left the church and became Satan worshipers or atheists and proclaimed the gospel is a lie. Do you understand? That's apostasy. Is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit apostasy? I say that's my second choice. Close. Second choice. I will tell you that apostasy is spoken of in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 6, we have an example of apostasy. But the third one is the one that I land on. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is speaking of a specific group of people who rejected the Spirit's work and testimony in the miracles performed in Jesus. A specific group of people. I believe it's related to the false charge the Jews made just before this sermon and just before the meal with the Pharisees. And it's mentioned numerous times in Matthew and Mark. And I told you they said this over and over. This was the charge they had against Jesus was he casts out demons by Beelzebub. So... What are they attributing the miracles of Jesus to? Satan. Which is doing what? They are saying that the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in Jesus is Satan's work. I believe that at this point, Jesus has basically washed his hands and said, Judgment's coming on you guys. For the vast majority of the religious elite had seen the Messiah, seen the miracles, and said those miracles are from Satan, not the Holy Spirit. And Jesus begins to speak throughout the Gospels and parables. After this, you watch the other ones, a multitude of parables. So what's that do? It causes the Jewish elites to what? Not understand. They're confused. They just get more angry. It appears that this is who he's talking about. These Jewish elite religious Pharisees that had seen it and did what? Completely rejected it and even attributed it to Satan. So, can we blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. I think he's talking to this specific group here. Another evidence that he's talking to this specific group mainly is the next command. We'll get to in a second. Now, I will warn you this though. Even though we cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the same way the Jews of his day, the leaders of his day did, we can still be an apostate. If in this place you have heard the gospel over and over and over and over. Just recently I heard of a, of a person that was in a, in a church that we all know for eight years hearing the gospel. Over and over and over, she left her husband for another person. This, folks, is scary. 
He has heard the gospel numerous times over and over and over and she left. This is apostasy. This is what it's like. And says, I don't believe it at all. It's garbage. That sounds like apostasy to me. Be careful, folks. Check your hearts. That's your warning right now. Check your hearts. You hear this truth? You best humble yourself to the mighty God and embrace Jesus as your only hope. Please, I warn you. So I don't think that we should fear this particular sin, but we should recognize that apostasy can happen in the circles we run. Finally, we come to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, this exhortation is another fun one. (laughs) The exhortation from Jesus here is to his disciples. And it looks very similar to a time, doesn't it? Acts chapter 2. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Bring, if somebody brings you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities, this was exactly what happened to Jesus' disciples after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He was brought before the rulers and authorities. They were brought before these guys. Acts 4 records an exact similar circumstance. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and warning them, this is coming, this is how you should respond. Jesus reveals their need again. And look, pay attention, focus again. He's continuing to say, you've got a need, you've got a need, you've got a need, trust me. You've got a need, trust me. He keeps saying it all the time. In discipleship, it's, you've got a need, trust Jesus. You've got a need, trust Jesus. It's the same way. And he says, how do you defend yourself? What are you going to say? What will you, how, what will you say to defend yourself? He says, don't worry about it. What to say when you're facing these religious rulers? Jesus says, no matter how intimidating the circumstances may look, don't worry. Then he gives the reason. Notice the because clause or for. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Because the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus gives them the basis of their hope in this intimidating situation. The one that the vast majority of Jews were rejecting and attributing to Beelzebub, you are going to be empowered by that Holy Spirit and taught by that Holy Spirit to actually speak. So don't worry. That Holy, the Holy Spirit will work in you, and you will know what to say. These are some extremely encouraging words. So, question. Does this mean the Spirit will teach us in this room in the very hour we need to give a defense so we don't need to study Scripture? Now, that's a great question. So, you know what I did this week? I, tried, I tested it. I didn't study. 
I just got up here and I'm winging it. Man, the Spirit's powerful, isn't he? I'm kidding. That was sarcasm. It was a joke. No, folks. Who's he talking to? How many of you have heard preachers say that before? Oh, I don't study. Spirit works in me. No! That's called applying a passage to yourself that you shouldn't apply to yourself in that way. Be careful. Who's the audience? Aren't we real quick to apply passages to ourselves when we need it? And now, oh, this gives me permission to do this because the Bible says so. We've got to be careful of the audience and what he's trying to say. Who's he talking to? The disciples. What hasn't been written? The New Testament at all. They don't have the New Testament. They have the Old Testament. They're going to stand. These fishermen don't have the New Testament. They're going to stand before synagogue rulers. And they're going to have to give a defense of this guy that was born God and man. And he was raised by a carpenter and his wife. And the woman was a virgin. And oh my. How? Where's, the, where's your proof? Where is it? The Holy Spirit would work, and He did work. He did amazing work. He demonstrated His power in an amazing way. Now, today, we all have all we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Him found in the New Testament. Do we also have the same Holy Spirit? Yes. And I listen to me. I know us guys that often run with the Master Seminary crew are labeled charismatic haters, spirit haters. <laughs> but we're not. We love the triune God. We recognize that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons and one God, and the Spirit of God is powerful and holy and worthy of all worship and praise. He works in us. But, do we get divine revelation outside of Scripture? I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary. Because the Spirit of God has the Word of God, which is His sword, which is this, to work in us. It's funny to me that when you look at the New Testament and you go through the epistles, it's interesting to me, have you ever wondered why at the beginning of almost all the epistles that Paul starts, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit. Why does he leave it out? Why does he leave him out would be proper. Answer, because the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul. And who is the Holy Spirit all about? Exalting the Father and the Son. The The Spirit is about the Father and the Son and exalting them. The Spirit. I went to a Benny Hinn conference once. Yes, I did not go in order to... Be healed, I went to learn. 
what a heretic looks like. And it was this, you ready? Over and over. Come, Spirit! Come, Spirit! Come, Spirit! Spirit, drop upon us! Spirit, come! Spirit, come! The Spirit never said that. He says, come, Lord Jesus! Come, Lord Jesus! That's the exaltation of a being. The scariest thing is, is that's the closest thing I can see to a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, the Spirit is about the Son. And the Son exalt, the Spirit exalts the Son of God. And we will all worship all of them. Now, what does the Spirit do? Yes, He helps us to put to death sin in our life. We rely on Him. He helps us to understand the Word of God. He helps me in my study all week long as I'm studying and grappling. How do I do this? What do I do? God, help me! And the Spirit of God illumines my mind. It's a work in progress. It's study. It's agony. It's sometimes a battle with me. But God works in our hearts. The Spirit works and He applies the, the Word of God to our hearts. How many of you have been hearing a sermon and you hear the Word of God preached and you're like, man, I'm convicted. This is bad. I've sinned. What is that? That's the Spirit of God working in you, convicting you. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. That's the Spirit working in us. He does work in us. He produces the character of Jesus in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The fruit of the Spirit works in us. He does those things. So yes, be encouraged that the Spirit of God is working in you. And you can stand firm. And you can trust in the Word. And the Spirit will help you to understand it. Seek Him. Seek God, but be careful of divine revelations and looking for special things outside of the Word of God. Notice, however, that Jesus is talking to these disciples to empower them, embolden them to face the very difficult task that they're going to face. And we close with this, and we see it happen. Jesus told them it was going to happen, and it happened. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed by these apostles because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander. And all who were of high priestly descent. And when they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this miracle that they're talking about? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people. Now, I picked on Peter all day, but here he goes. Look at the Spirit of God working in. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to know this man has been made well, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. Boy, he ain't afraid, is he? (laughs) You crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this name. This man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the, was rejected by you, the builders. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Only spirit and divine could have understood it. But which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is bold. Wow. That spirit-empowered boldness. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, the Spirit of God works in the people of God and demonstrates things that are just far beyond this world's understanding. This does not mean go home and don't pick up your Bible and go out and just preach with no study. Peter, the Apostle Peter tells us, study to show ourselves approves a good workman. Right? The reality is this. The Spirit of God is alive and working in the people of God. And he is helping us to know the Savior. Walk with him. Trust him. Do not worry. Enjoy the Savior. And honor our King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit that lives within us. Thank you, Father, that he convicts us of sin and illumines our eyes and gives us new hearts and helps us to put to death sin. Thank you, Father, for that great glorious promise of the new covenant. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ who is revealed in your word. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that our forgiveness is based on him and what he accomplished, not us and what we accomplish. Oh, Father, take us now and use us for your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.